Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit. I'm Laura Lavoir, and this is Song Cycle, the official podcast of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we talk everything art song. It's history, it's creation, it's performance, and it's ability to tell stories that connect communities. In this episode, I have Will Liverman with me. To put it in general terms, Will is a singer, a composer, and an arts advocate. To take a deeper dive, he's an incredible storyteller, Whether he's singing Brahms or John Legend, Will is both living in the world that classical vocal music has built and being the architect for a new musical future through his own performance and collaborations. During this conversation, I was so moved by his dedication and passion for connecting through stories and how essential it is to the future of our art form. So tell me about yourself. You know, I um, since I finished Juilliard, I went to the Ryan Center and did my three years there, continued my operatic training. It goes all the way back, though, to when I started governor schools when I got interested in opera. And that was what sparked that. And yeah, I finished, I did the program for three years and then started branching out to uh, the professional circuit which is probably the scariest thing, honestly, because they always say, you know, those first few years out of a program, wherever you're like, whenever you're done with like, you know, whether you want to be done with grad school, undergrad, and you take that jump out, when you finish those like institutions where you're kind of safe and then just jump out there, those are the, you know, those are really challenging years to kind of bridge that gap and get my name out there. Did a lot of auditions, a lot of competitions, and slowly kind of just worked my way into the professional circuit, did a lot of, you know, regional work, and which led to bigger things. And I kind of just hung in there. And now, yeah, I've been have, have I feel like I have the opportunity to, you know, really now with this platform to be an advocate for highlighting black composers, creating stories, commissioning things, because I, I think that's something that uh, over the course, especially this past year, I've been really amped up about and it's something that's like really inspiring to me in addition to my work on stage and and performing and things like that so uh, I'm now I just I'm uh, finishing up with Opera Theater of St. Louis we did this show uh, Highway 1 USA by William Grant Still Um, it's highly unknown people don't really do it I it's a beautiful piece it's only it's like 45 minutes long actually it's pretty short Uh, you can pair it with a lot of things I think and that was really cool because this was my first opera coming back after 15 months out of the pandemic. So it was really a bright spot to do a work by a Black composer coming out of the pandemic. And then just yesterday, we did, Nicole Cabell and I curated this uh, Juneteenth concert to sort of end the season with. And that went really well. It was a beautiful thing to, you know, get to listen to all my colleagues perform. And yeah, it was just a beautiful afternoon. It was outside and you know, there was, I think they opened it up to like four or 500 people or something like that. So just to honestly perform again and be out there and, you know, that energy you have with, you know, on stage with your colleagues and making music and, you know, missing the audience so much after all of this Zoom stuff, like it's really been a great experience out here in St. Louis. And so that's where I'm at now. 
That's awesome. I love that you brought up one of the things that I feel like is just kind of the forefront of all of our brains right now is um, kind of the Black experience and Black art song, Mm. especially in in our field right now in opera by Black composers. As I was preparing to talk to you today, I actually listened to your album, Dreams of a New Day. Um, It was like in my background while I was responding to emails and stuff. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, and this is something that really before the past year or so, I honestly hadn't been exposed to a lot of music by Black composers. I knew of a handful. Um, But that was something that CSI really tried to invest in in the past year during our season. And Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk to me a little bit about the experience that you had um, and are continuing to have as you embrace Black composers and stuff, especially as they haven't really been embraced much um, until recently. So can you just talk to me a little bit about that experience and exploring that repertoire? And um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, with Black composers, it was something... At least for me, I didn't know much of the rep coming out of school. I feel like, you know, most schools in general, I, you know, I've had conversations with other people who, you know, have done the conservatories and, you know, we spend a lot of time with the greats, you know, Schubert, Schumann, Brahms. And of course, I mean, they've got masterpieces and they deserve their due and we need to study these composers. But I think what's missing, at least for me, you know, like we never really touched on um, or at least I never remember studying like so much on, you know, the, you know, H- Henry Burley, Margaret Bonds, Florence Price. So, you know, after I finished school, there was this song cycle that I did while I was in the Ryan Center called uh, Five Songs of Lawrence Hope by Henry Burley. And it just struck me because up until that, I only really knew of his spirituals. I mean, of course, like, you know, he's as a prominent figure, I mean, he's like kind of like the father of song and, you know, just sort of the black voice, you know, with what he did and taking, you know, his grandfather was a slave and he would, uh, he took the melodies that his grandfather would sing and, and put them and set them in a way that could be classically sung, you know, creating the Negro spiritual, which gave black singers a platform uh, to do concert recitals and stuff. So he did a lot. The Negro spiritual is an important part of the repertoire and it's very important. But what struck me was that like, You know, when I would see black composers on recitals, it was always just the spirituals, you know, it was like you do your German, French, English, and then I, you know, the spirituals at the end. And it's just like a, I don't know, sort of like a standard practice. And I was like, well, you know, black composers also wrote songs, too, you know, like, and that was the thing that struck me about the five songs of Lawrence Hope. It was just like this fantastic piece of writing. I had no idea that he, you know, was capable of the beautiful melodies and harmonies. I mean, not that I didn't think he would be capable of, but it was just like it struck me because I just, I hadn't heard this song cycle. And it just kind of set me down a path of discovering black composers and art song, which led me to like two years ago, come up with this program that I presented to CD Records uh, of doing an album of all black composers and art song, you know, and and highlighting black composers for their contributions in art song. Because, you know, like one of the things I found out, I mean, there's just so much like not only, you know, are there great pieces out there, but it's just like these composers influenced, you know, Western music in general. And I feel like they've gone overlooked for so long. Um, You know, a lot of people don't know about the relationship with Burley and Dvorak and how, you know, Dvorak came to New York and they met and like Burley introduced him to black music, which influenced Dvorak's greatest works, things like that. And so that's kind of what the idea behind being an advocate of black voices and, and black composers. And also at the same time, coupled with uh, making sure that we can own our own narrative and create new stories that we want to be told. So Two Black Churches, which is kind of the centerpiece of the album, was something that I commissioned for my uh, good friend, Sean Opebolo, Chicago-based composer. He's an excellent guy. And it's a very serious subject matter, but something that you know we felt was really important. You know, with the Black experience, I mean, there's Black joy, there's also a lot of black pain and that was something that we touched on and that was just a story that we wanted to tell I'm kind of rambling on and on but i think the main thing was just always wherever i you know do recitals and presenting <coughs> programs is to really make sure to highlight you know the, compo- the black composers of old and also highlight and normalize composers that are you know doing it now the ones that are out there um, working at different opera companies and you know doing really great works and just always keeping these these composers in this repertoire in the canon because it's very important. 
there are two things that I really want to touch on that you brought up. But Mm -hmm. the first thing I want to ask you is because you're talking a lot about art song and black art song. And what to you in this context then is an art song? Hmm, that's a great question. I thought I saw that. And I, you know, was thinking a little bit about that. For me, like, the more that I'm kind of trying to step outside the box and rethink things, anything that's just musically set, like Texas musically set, like, I start programming John Legend on my recital now. I mean, if you think of it, it's just ordinary people, it's words, it's the voice, it's piano. Why can't that be an art song? You know, like, it doesn't have to be, I mean, it can be art, it can live in both worlds. It could be R&B, it could be an art song. I think anything that's, you know, you take some text, you musically set it, it could be, it's an art song. Listen, <laughs> I'm here for John Legend all day, every day, yeah. always. So yeah. you program him on a recital, and I will be there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Let's Anytime. Like John Legend and Brahms, like, why not? You know? Absolutely. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. Um, So, but the other thing that you, you brought up that I think is so important and something that I have found to be very prevalent in conversations that I've had with people and in something that we've talked a lot about in artistic programming at CSI, and I know a lot of other organizations and artists have had this conversation too, is the importance of storytelling. Mm. And how really as artists and as singers especially we put ourselves into kind of the lineage of great storytellers Mm -hmm. and you're going to be in that lineage i mean hello you've been in the news you have albums out there so like your stories and the way you tell stories will continue on until the internet dies so what to you and I know you you touched on this briefly, but can you talk to me a little bit about the stories that you have both discovered in your exploration of Black composers, but also, and, you know, maybe things that you knew and relate to, or things that you didn't know, or um, things that you maybe have discovered about yourself as you go on this sort of artistic journey in terms of your story? I think the main thing was, it was important for me, for people to know, you know, about how I feel, like being... Especially, you know, thinking about, I mean, the timing of the Black Composers project, how we were, we were recorded, we recorded it maybe shortly after the George Floyd tragedy and just put so many things into context. Recording that album just had a different feeling and, and meaning behind it. Just thinking about that and, I don't know, with the pandemic and all of these things, with sitting with the, with that, like, I, I really felt that can I start again? Because I'm like, on a, I'm trying to like... No, no, it's I, okay. I realize this yeah, is yeah. a very, this is a big question because yeah, yeah. one of the things that I'm trying really hard to get at with people I talk to is like, yeah. is the story. Right. And yeah. I know that there is, there's narrative here that has mm-hmm. been buried for a very long time. Yeah. That's, and, yeah. you know, you, uh, I feel like you and like people like Devon and other folks that I've talked to mm-hmm. who are like... Y'all are front and center in all yeah. of this right now in both expressing stories of the past, right? but also trying to like establish the stories that you have to tell now. That's the thing. That's where I was trying to get at. It's just like, I'm here for Venturiza. I'm here for like all of these, you know, great works that have been done a million times. But like, what about my stories, you know, like, and my experiences? And that to me was at the heart of you know, the commission that happened and programming these black composers because, you know, Margaret Bonds, I, you know, three dream portraits, you know, was a response to, you know, things going on during the civil rights movement. But, you know, you jump 60 something years later and it's still very relevant. And it's still very much like those words are my story. Someone who is, you know, a black voice with this experience is writing things. Langston Hughes is, you know, he's writing these things that I have a, a deep connection to that I can never have in a way with pieces of the past just because it's my experience so that's why it's very important that we continue to tell our own stories and create our own narratives I think that's one I mean that's just an important way because that's you know well I'm going on all of these things but like that's what people did in the past you know and I think it's an important way that enhances the art form I never expected the album to do what it did at the heart of it was like it's a true passion project I just really wanted to have a platform or to give black composers a platform and to just celebrate black voices 
the responses that I've been getting of people who've been, you know, really moved by the album. People, you know, I've got want to, you know, perform two black churches. Like it's all of a sudden something that's in the canon. And it's like, that was really special. And I didn't expect that to happen. But, you know, people see that. And I think it's when you have something like a real connection to music um, and things, something that you can relate to, it's just like a, a different feeling that hits. And no, and that this is not to have any sort of disrespect or treat all the works of the past like any less because, you know, I love Brahms for serious songs. Let's pay respects to that, but also keep going forward with our experiences and, and having that kind of shine through in the music. It's just come up over and over and over again in conversations I've yeah. had with people is we have in classical music a very distinct reverence for the past. And it feels like anything beyond 1930 just hasn't made it. You're right. I, I haven't. I had an epiphany about that a little bit. Like I was watching this HBO documentary about Hollywood, and it started from the '40s, and they worked their way up to present day, and it just went through all the different. They like, start off like silent film, the golden age, the '60s, '70s, '80s, and and musicals as well, like that were featured in these Hollywood films, which make them mainstream. But the thing is, like in those worlds, they're constantly telling stories, like news stories, things that are relevant. So people are flocking to the theater because they, you know, there's a connection there. It's an accessibility that's there where people can just, they get it. And yeah, like something with opera, I don't know what, I mean, there's, we have new works or there are things that are written in the 20th century, but I don't know, there's just something missing. We kept the Mozart and Puccini and the Verities and stuff, but then there came a point where it's just like, those are the standard things. And like the new works are kind of treated as a sideshow of like, let's put on this big premiere and then be done with it and go back to our Carmens and Toscas and because that's what sells and that's what people, you know, want to see. But where are our stories of now? One of the things I'm hopeful for that I've seen is just like, of course, there are lots of new works that are being pumped out now. And I feel like there's been a, a shift, which has been good. But I think we just have to really treat it with a little bit more care and just, yeah. I'm yeah. going to hazard a guess. And I think you, you nailed it. As you said, it's the stories. And yeah. if you think about some of the stories that have survived up until now, you have stories like La Boheme, Tosca, Carmen, all of these ones where like, there are very relatable things in all of those yeah. stories. But I also feel as though because opera has, and classical music kind of in general, has really just lived in kind of 1934, yeah, yeah, yeah. those mm. stories feel so far away. Right, you know? right. And I feel like especially now, more than ever, because we have the technology to document every single moment of our narrative through social media and the news yeah. and all this stuff, it's all out there. So people know what the stories are. And I feel like, I'm not sure the word I'm looking for, but it just looks a little blind to just sort of not acknowledge yeah. that there are these things going on. And like you said, you know, they kind of end up becoming, these new works end up becoming sort of a sideshow to yeah. the classics. It's yeah. alienating people, I feel like. Right. And that's kind of my whole point where I kind of got lost a little bit is like what we consider mainstream, you know, Hollywood musicals that kind of thing. They make real space for new works to come in. I mean, you look at uh, any number of musicals that have come out in the past 10 years, like Book of Mormon, Hamilton, In the Heights, like they make, I think, real space for these new pieces to, you know, have a potential to have a life, you know, and a story to be told. And I don't know, like, I think one of the things is the accessibility thing, you know, with the pandemic, you know, I think we need a, an increase of, you know, a digital presence. It can't just be the Met HD anymore. You know, I think every opera company needs a Spotify page and just like all young kids, like everyone has their phone and digest music that way. So we have to kind of rethink that and kind of keep up with that. Otherwise, like it gets kind of lost and, you know, we we miss out on lots of opportunities to reach out to the masses and, you know, really make this art form that is so beautiful, really visible. Because oftentimes it's it's not. It's like that, yeah, sort of that wall. It's just like, if you don't have a $130 ticket, then you're not going to see, you know, it's just like, there's still that thing with opera where it's just not, we don't even do like a rush ticket thing. Or, you know, you can line up outside an opera house and whatever tickets aren't sold, you know, just come right on in. I feel like there's lots of different things that we can do to improve the accessibility and the visibility of how opera can be digested. And, you know, it could potentially bring in, you know, younger audiences. Because I'm sure you've, you know, been in a situation like first-time opera goers or concert goers come away so blown away by what they see. They've never been in the opera before, but, like, every time, like, I go to a different city, 
I like my thing is like I go to the black barber shop, right? So eventually they'll ask, like, what brings you to town? I'd be like, oh, I'm an opera singer. They'd be like, what? Get out of here. I've never been in the opera. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, that's what I've been doing for, you know, past six years. And we go on and start talking. And it's like, well, when's the show? Are you performing? And then, you know, I tell them about the show. I oftentimes don't know anyone in the city. So I give them my tickets <laughs> and they bring their friends and I'll meet them after the show. And they're like, I had such a great time. I had no idea this was here, man. Like this was such a cool show. I didn't know, op I didn't know opera could be like this, like that type of thing. You know, even for the classic stuff, like it's there's enough there to draw interest. There's just, I think, more that we could do to put it there for people. <clears throat> Absolutely. And I think the pandemic has just really forced a reckoning on yeah. all of that. And one of the things that I love that you pointed out is accessibility. Because mm -hmm. yes, you know, we want to make sure that we are in the 21st century. Like, yeah. I'm not even sure if we made it into the 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> we need to make sure that, you know, we're we're staying relevant in terms of just where the world is at, you know, mm -hmm. technology wise. But also, I was talking to someone the other day about this idea of keeping things in English. And I'm not saying that, like, we need to completely do away with works that are in French and Italian and German and Russian mm -hmm. and Polish and all mm -hmm. these other things. Mm -hmm. But the vernacular, especially in American opera, like it just sits different on your heart. And one of the things that really like struck me so much when I was listening to your album is like you have powerful texts that like I immediately understood. You know, because it was in English. I mean, we have already established we both love Interiza, like that's fine. <laughs> yeah, right. But it just sits different. And on top of that, there are musical idioms in there that like I immediately grabbed onto. Like there's a lot of jazz and theater influence in, in those yeah. songs. And like those are things that people may not realize, A, are part of the Black experience and part of yeah. our a very rich musical history. But two, it's something that people can sort of grab onto and be like, oh, it's not just, you know, a one, four, right. five, one right, situation. Right. Yeah. So I think that that also plays into this accessibility thing where it's like, you know, as we start incorporating all of the things that make up our musical history and not just, you know, 1815 to eighteen right. we start allowing people to have more access just through the fact that they A, understand the language and B, understand the musical language. Yeah. That's, you said it right there. <laughs> yeah. So you me the big bucks. <laughs> Uh, so well as you've been going through you obviously like before we started recording i told you i was nervous to talk to you because you're bona fide famous now okay, we've established that. we've known each other for 10, 11 years right yeah. we've known each other a long time known each other. you Don't still look the same you look younger <laughs> i'm getting older you look great kid but We've known each other a long time and I was really nervous about talking to you because you were, I remember sitting in PJ Clark's with you eating food. And I was like, you're going to be famous one day. And you're like, uh, no. <laughs> Not Literally the across the street from the Met. And you were like, nah, fam, like that's not going to happen. And here you are a bona fide famous person please and no. <laughs> you have this amazing career both in sort of the the classicaliest of the classical musics in opera mm -hmm. but you're also just boldly foraging a new path for yourself so i want to know or i want you to talk to me about the challenges that have come along with that and some of the rewards because i know we love to be like, oh, yes, I am the struggling mm -hmm. artiste. <laughs> no, life is just full of strife and people yeah, telling right. me no, and I have gone against all odds to achieve yeah. the dream. You know, we love hearing about that. But also, I think it's really important for people to hear the things that have gone really well and the things that, you know, mm. people who have helped you along the way or things that you're like, this was a huge win in my book. So can you talk to me about the rewards and the challenges that you've had over the last, you said about six years that you've been <laughs> doing this for real? Yeah. The challenges I think is not being afraid to always put yourself out there. We we deal with rejection so much. I mean, if we can't even really call it rejection because it's just a part of the game. And that's, I mean, that, that could wear on you. Always having to put on face, always having to be on your best at all times, whether it's rehearsal, performance. It was a challenge for me to be in my top game at all times because, you know, you're, you get afraid of, it's a real thing to be afraid to, to fail and to have people 
you know, not like you and not hire you back or whatever the case may be, because it's your livelihood. So you want to do a good job and you want to be successful. Um, but then there's that part of you that just has to believe like in what you're offering and that being enough. And of course, always doing what you can to better yourself, whether it be languages or that phrase that doesn't quite sit right or those things you always have to be improving on. You always have to be a student and know what it is that you need to, to work on to make it better. But knowing that you have something to offer, I think is really important. I, what I, something I've learned and being comfortable in that and knowing that you have a voice, like no one else has your voice. Like that's, I think, one of the beautiful things about singing in general, whether it's art song, opera, no one can go to Guitar Center and get Laura LaVar's voice for, you know, $100,000. You know, like it's not... <laughs> No Only one can... a hundred thousand. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? Like, just the fact that we are singers is already such a unique and beautiful thing because we all have different instruments, and we're not gonna tell the story. One of the things that makes pieces like Venturiza and things being the canon is because like there's so many different interpretations, so many different people put their stamp on it with the way that they sound, the quality of the voice, like. Knowing that you have your own voice and something to offer and being like and resting in that, I think is very important. You really have to love yourself and it's hard, but like you have to, you have to. Otherwise, like, I, I don't know how you could, it's already challenging enough and you have to be your biggest supporter and your biggest fan. You can't wait for that affirmation from your coach or teacher to, you know, be like, oh, you're doing great. Like you're sounding great. And then, you know, then that's like when you feel, okay, I must be good. You know, like you got to know that yourself. You know, it's not an arrogance thing, but it's just like you have to have that, that self-confidence to, you know, keep yourself going, especially when things are, you know, not going so well. That's when you need it the most when you have because we're all going to have bad performances and bad auditions. And that's just a part of it. So you have to have that that anchor to, you know, keep going. And I'd say some of the rewards. Well, one thing I can talk about is during the pandemic, I had been working on an opera that I was writing for two years, kind of on and off with my friend uh, Rocket Jackson, goes by K Rico. We went to high school together. I came to him with this idea of kind of rewriting or putting a new spin on Barber of Seville and setting it in a black barbershop. And so we were working on that kind of on and off. Then when the pandemic hit, you know, we had all this time to like really write it. So, you know, I started seeking out grants and support and you know, we did like this crowdfunding thing through this uh, organization, Three Arts, to raise money so we could do our own workshop and all this stuff. And then out of nowhere, as things were canceling and seasons were canceled, companies were looking for, um, you know, alternative programming and stuff. Some kind of way, Lyric Opera of Chicago heard about what we were doing. And uh, lo and behold, we ended up workshopping our opera with Lyric and the papers are officially signed. We're premiering our piece in a future season. It's called The Factotum. And the reason I say all this is because one of the joys I think that I've just kind of discovered during this pandemic is like not waiting for permission for anything. If you, and this kind of goes back to, you know, telling your own stories, like not being afraid to step outside the box because people kind of, you know, want to perceive you and kind of just figure you out and put you in this one thing. You know, you can do multiple things. You can be a singer, you could be a painter, you could, you know, like you don't have to be just defined by this one thing. And I think that's like the biggest thing that I've learned. And that's like the biggest joy is like I can, and it's scary, but like in a way it's so freeing to just take ownership in that and really not worry what other people have to say. Like if you, you can have other passions and pursue other things and still be an opera singer. Um, and you never know what those things will lead to. So, so I'm living proof of that. And, you know, I want to encourage everyone out there to follow what's in your heart and what you have to say and like what those passions are and not worry about people trying to put you in a cat. I was like, oh, well, you're doing this. So you're not serious about opera or you're, you know, that's just all out the window. I'm obsessed with everything you just said. <laughs> and this is something that I think is changing with our generation of singers is this idea that you don't have to be just the opera singer or that if you aren't 100% dedicated to being a classical singer 100% of the time, mm. that you are not serious about what you do. And I feel like from what you're telling me and from what I've experienced myself and in talking to other people is that if you do other stuff, like mm -hmm. write music or create stuff or paint stuff or cook stuff or whatever stuff it is you make that right. allows you to be a creative person, then you somehow become a better artist. 
I don't know if it's yes. like, Absolutely. you know, you have new smells or colors or ways mm. to express yourself, but it makes you better. Yeah, thousand percent. It's all connected. Well, I was going to say, and that's kind of how it is for music in general, I feel like, and just the world where it's like, if you limit yourself to one period mm. of time or yeah. to one nationality or one gender or one anything, yeah. if you limit yourself to those mm. things, sure, it might be great or it might be yeah. nice, but when you include other people or other things or other time periods, everything's just better. Yeah. It is. Mic drop. Maybe, maybe someone's going to look at the podcast and be like, Laura, you are preemptively fired from any job you <laughs> No, but you're, you're so right. I mean, I mean, yeah, opera is a beautiful thing. There's not a day that goes by where I'm not thankful for what I do on a stage and like know that that's like a challenging thing to make it in this business. And I'm grateful so far for the work that I've gotten and uh, what I've done. But in addition to that, like there are just other things that fulfill me and make me inspired and I want to pursue those things. And, you know, if you got if there are people out there that that have projects or, you know, ideas or stories that the, that they want to be told, you don't need to wait for institutions to write that email. Start it yourself. Like the support is there. If you have a vision and a mission statement or whatever it is that that's like very clear, like people will see that and someone's going to want to stand behind what you have to, what you're, what you're up to, like, because it's, it's something that I realize and it's something that I think, you know, we should all be doing, you know, the, the, for the creatives out there is just really take control of that, you know, make a plan, figure out how you're going to, you know, achieve that thing that you've been sitting on for the past three years, you know, make it happen because it's, it's possible. So one of the things that, and this kind of ties together a couple things that we've talked about is this idea of owning your voice, whether that's yeah. your actual physical, like vocal folds <laughs> flapping together, or just sort of you as a creative person. And so one of the things I've noticed as a teacher myself mm -hmm. is that there are certain types of people like musical theater singers, for example, who from a very early age in their training are taught like you maybe, you know, one of a million others types of voice or character, whatever you are, but you have something special to offer. And like, you need to just go hard and get in there, do the thing, own what you've got and have confidence in who you are and don't yeah. have any self-doubt. Yeah. But I feel, at least in my own experience, that as classical singers, we are slightly more neurotic mm -hmm. and <laughs> taught to question things a little bit more and have yeah. a little less confidence in our abilities. And so can you talk to me a little bit about how you have sort of overcome that if you if you have experienced that in your training again i don't want to place my own experience on you but just <laughs> no. you know having those voices that say like you aren't enough or you know there are four thousand other baritones out there who can do exactly mm -hmm. what you do obviously you know we want to train to be the best but how mm -hmm. have you been able to give yourself permission without mm -hmm. seeking it from other people and having confidence and building that confidence that you mm -hmm. are enough that's a great question and i've dealt with that just by looking like how I look. Opera was once designed as something to keep black people out. So being a black man in an opera world, a Eurocentric art form is hard for some people to see me in a leading role with someone who isn't black. And I felt that type of energy before. It's something that was challenging a lot starting out in my career. I had a someone once tell me that I would not have a, I would be covering roles in America and maybe have a career in Europe at bee houses because of my height and my color. And that was something that really sat with me for a while, you know, like it was devastating. You know, when you're a young artist, like you take all those things to heart because you want to, I mean, you're out to impress people. You want to do a good job. And like, you take every, you know, all those master classes, you're like going back and, you know, doing everything that, you know, we're still learning and developing. And that was something um, that I was hard, but I eventually, you know, kind of took those words and like flipped them around and kind of used that as fuel for me to prove those people wrong and just really amped up everything, practicing more nonstop, like being the best version of myself, all the things I had control over, I would make sure to really work hard to be at the top level, to be as twice as good as everybody else. So eventually that that was like fuel to the fire for me. It's just truly, you know, your your color walks on stage before you do. You feel that energy sometimes of people like, okay, well, what are you going to do? You know, like, 
and you kind of just show them, let them know, you know, like I'm here to <laughs> sing this thing down, you know, like, and that's just like something that over the years I've turned into extra motivation to just go even harder and not worry about what people have to say at the end of the day. Cause like, I, you know, going back, like I know that I have something to offer. It's not going to be for everybody, but I'm okay with that. Like take it or leave it. Like I, like if I feel good about performance that I've done and like, I know that that's, I've left it all out there and I've tried my best, like basta. A lot of people need to hear that. What I think that's yeah. really important and that people do unfortunately have prejudices mm. and that womps. That womps. Laura. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so thank you for for talking to me about, about that story. Of course, yeah. I think it's important for people to hear. So that said, and, you know, as someone like you who has clearly just, you've worked so hard and achieved so much. And like I was saying earlier, you have really embraced sort of the things that make classical music what we strive for it to be, you know, like this beautiful art form of expression. And But you've also kind of foraged this love of and proliferation of Black composers and telling new stories. All of these things have, whether you like it or not, made you a leader in the musical world right now. You have people who follow you and support you, and you are blazing new trails. So that mm. makes you a leader. You're doing new stuff that you're not just following the same ruts that other people have traveled before you. So to you as an arts leader, what do you think that it looks like or what do you think are some of the qualities that one should have to be a leader in the arts today? Wow, what a great question. Uh, <laughs> wow. I'm very sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm no. Oh, that's a great question. No, I mean like, no, I'm really, it is. I'm like, the wow <laughs> is me thinking of my answer. You know, you have to be inspired by something, first of all, like, I think that has to be some, and that's the, like, that's the authentic part, the motive, like, what's the why, why, you know, the motivation behind what it is you're trying to achieve or what it is you're trying to do. Because without that, you know, if you don't have the purpose, there's no anchor or there's nothing. It's like, what are you doing? You know, I think you just have to know, first of all, like, what is my motivation for the thing that I'm trying to get towards or achieve? Uh, the why is so important. And for me, I want to see more people that look like me in the audience because I went to because I was fortunate enough to go to Norfolk, Virginia at the Governor's School for the Arts where this program introduced us to opera. And I've, you know, I've talked about this uh, with a lot of people, the Governor's School for the Arts. And, you know, it's uh, the place where I had also like Freddie Ballantyne went, where Ryan Speedle Green went, Crystal Williams, like we were all Adam Richardson. We were all there together. And it's funny because like the reverse thing sort of happened for me. Well, we always talk about diversity and inclusion and things like that in the opera world, but I came into the opera world with it being super, super diverse. I was around so many young, black, white, Asian, Latinx people in the governor's school that were so talented. It was so diverse. This whole like concept of dreaming, like that was the dream realized was my governor's school experience in high school. And then that just went away. The opposite happened. Like I went to college and all of a sudden I'm looking around. And I'm like, wait, you know, I'm like the only black guy here, you know, like in a lot of different settings. So my thing is like figuring out a way to be a, an advocate, like I said, for inclusion and in, in, especially in our young audiences, our young black audiences. Uh, so that was the inspiration behind my opera, bringing in a new audience through the musical language that people, you know, that kids listen to all the time putting it in a black barbershop. That's important. Like when we tell stories, there has to be, I think, you know, some sort of connection there. If we really want, if we want to bring in, you know, new audiences, like people love to see things that they're experiencing and living, you know? So like that was the thought behind that. And then the same idea goes along with like, you know, commissioning new works and, you know, that's how we really can get there. You know, I want to continue down that way and hopefully come into a role one day where I'm, you know, helping young people of color, you know, come into leadership positions because we need that on the on the opposite end of the artistic side. That's my mission and that's my why is I want to get back to what I experienced in high school. But it was a beautiful thing. I mean, our audiences were so diverse because 
you know, it's like a diverse cast. So like all of our parents, all of their friends are coming to the opera to watch a high school production of Marriage of Figaro. You know, like though, you know, that was a beautiful thing. And I, you know, it was like, I don't know, a, a few months ago where I thought of that, I was just like, dang, like that's where it started for me. And then it kind of just took a turn. And I, you know, want to be an advocate to get back to what that was, you know, and go to different opera companies and see people that look like me and see, you know, more diverse crowds. Long, I mean, going back to your question, like, <laughs> to be a leader, I think you have to have your why first, because if you don't, like, where are you going? How do you know, you know, where you're headed if you don't have that? So for you, I know we've been talking about how you're a bona fide famous person and you have yeah. this really amazing career. We talked about at the very beginning, kind of jokingly, but not because it's amazing, but programming things like Brahms and John Legend on the same concert, you know? Mm. So you have had this awesome, just sort of artistic expression of being like, okay, I'm going to sing classical music, but also like new music or contemporary music or pop music or R&B or whatever as a way to connect stories and create narrative throughout, you know, the extent of our musical history, whatever we make of it. So in that respect, and this is something you've sort of embraced, but I want to hear a little bit more about the process and all of that. But how how can we use art song or song, we'll say, because that, you know, as we have established, that can include John Legend. Um, how can we use art song as a form of storytelling to bring about social change? I think the, the programming is a, one of the first things that comes to mind and the intent behind what you're doing, um, because I think that's huge. You know, I did a Juneteenth concert just yesterday with Nicole Cabell, um, and it featured all black com black composers. And, you know, it was very varied from, you know, we did Duke Ellington, this was Florence Price, uh, instrumental piece, some spoken words, some, you know, uh, burly art songs. But the, you know, there was a, the message behind it was so powerful and just like celebrating black voices and what that is and just how excited, you know, the crowd was um, to just be a part of that and and witness that. Like, you never know who you might touch and inspire when you have a really clear intent of what, you know, what it is you're trying to accomplish. And that's just the beauty of music in general. And yeah, it was a very special moment yesterday and it was a great way for me to end my time here. But I think that's the main thing. And when I think about it, it's just like, I mean, if that's the intent is social change being really clear about what it is you're putting on the program and, and the why behind it. The thing I'm really excited about is there is a lot, I feel like intention is an overused word, but there is a lot of intention behind elevating and mm -hmm. putting out there the music of Black composers and yeah. telling those stories. For, for me especially, just as a person, mm -hmm. I've been trying really hard to embrace this idea that like there is no scarcity in art, that like if we make space for Black composers, it's going to take away from people like Verdi and Brahms and Wagner mm -hmm. and stuff. Like there's always room. I feel like part of it has been like just pulling adult teeth without any mm. type of Novocaine or anything, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. been a little bit of kicking and screaming, but the fact that there is space being made mm -hmm. for this is so important. And I'm seeing little seedlets of change, yeah. both in arts organizations, but also in like legislation. Yeah. Little, yeah. little seedlets. Little seedlets. <laughs> That's so true. And I wanted to add to your question about like, how can we think about social social change with art song is where you perform the location, you know, that's huge, like, COVID aside, we had to have it outdoors. But like, had this been in some, you know, Carnegie Hall thing, you know, it's gonna you're gonna get a Carnegie Hall audience. We put this in a, you know, in a park, we had seatings, but I mean, people could still hear and, and you know, sit in the lawn and, and watch if they wanted to. And there's just a number, I couldn't tell you the number of like pedestrians or walk pat and just like, just sit and watch. Um, so like, where are you going to be putting on your art song recital? And a, a regular old, you know, I mean, you, yes, you could do it in, in a recital hall. It's, that's beautiful, acoustics and whatever. But like, rethinking like how, you know, put it in a, a restaurant, a coffee shop, a barber shop, a, you know, like, bring it somewhere, bring it to the people. And going back to even digitally, like, there's lots of ways in which you can digest something. I think 
that's an important thing too is you know we've seen lots of uh, projects and things that have that have you know people have done videos and and things like that those are important people can easily access that stuff and watch it on their own time and you know that's how you i think can you know get the art out there and um, for the people. And that dovetails really, or leads really nicely into my next question for you is, like I said earlier, we in the classical music world have kind of been pushed into this new era of music making and connection and all this stuff, kicking and screaming, but we're here. And, you know, we've talked a lot about what we kind of hope the future of our art form looks like. But what I want to ask you about is like, what is our obligation to continuing to evolve song performance and you know whether that be in the concert hall or not or mm. in a digital medium or not like what what does that evolution look like or where do you think we should start heading that's a great question i mean i really i do see it heading in a, a good direction now i mean finally like with this post pandemic like we're seeing people become more creative in how we can access song and and performance and I think it needs to continue to head in a direction of one commissioning. There's so many stories that 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 need to be told out there, you know. So I think it's our responsibility to make sure that they do get told. I've been motivated by what I've seen by my other colleagues who have done, you know, created new projects during this pandemic, commissioning composers, the collaborations that I've seen and bringing important things to life. And I think we have to continue heading in that direction this idea of like not waiting for permission. And I think the pandemic <laughs> put a lit of fire under us to really think differently about how we engage with our audiences and different ways in which we can access song and, you know, whether it be, you know, digitally or um, an outdoor thing. I think we just have to always be thinking outside the box and being not afraid to push what art song can be and that's something I'm learning how to do. Like when I talked about like John Legend, I was scared at first. It was like, oh, here comes the, you know, the jazz set, like, or whatever. It's like, no, I think it's, you know, why not program other artists that you, that you feel a connection to, that you want to sing to, we'll put them on the recital. Like, and oftentimes it's like people like I, not, you know, it's just maybe it's how I sang it or whatever, but like most times when I do my John Legend stuff, people only talk about that, but I'm like, but what about my Brahm serious songs? You didn't enjoy those, you know, like. But it's like you said, it's the connection. We just have to always be thinking outside the box and not being afraid of what other voices might say of what's considered right or like, oh, this isn't how art songs should go or, oh, you know, like, you gotta gotta shut all that out and just do it anyway. Yeah, that was something that came up in a conversation I had recently with someone where she was like, you, you have to be okay with failing publicly sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I'm definitely in this canoe with you. I feel like if as a storyteller you have a connection to a story then why not tell it yeah if there's something in there that needs to be expressed and I, again like I, I said earlier we have this weird thing where like every moment of our lives is being documented in some way whether it's on mm -hmm. snapchat or instagram or facebook everything is being documented right now and it can be very easy to sort of get lost in everyone trying to tell their story or to yeah. solidify their narrative if for you something is important or speaks to you then who's to say that that's not song absolutely and cancel out everything i just said before about because that's the main heart that's the heart of it like where does art song need to be headed? Just wrapping this all up, like it literally is, we're storytellers, you know? Continuing to tell our stories and, and taking ownership of that because someone out there is gonna relate to what it is that you're, you know, singing about. And, you know, whatever that story is, there's somebody out there that can relate and there's a connection to. And if it's just that one person, then it's all worth it for me. And so I think that's the heart of it is making sure that we, we aren't afraid to uh, just own that and keep doing that. I mean, that's, that, like I said, it's just does nothing but enhance this art form, make it better, more diverse, more inclusive. And that's at the heart of it to me is, you know, how you really make change. Absolutely. And that's something I have come to realize in my own humanity is that we are so hardwired for connection. And that's yes. that I have had revelation after revelation after revelation on both in my singing and mm -hmm. in my talks with people on the podcast and just life, especially during the pandemic when we weren't able to connect with people. We have now 
like you said, sort of relit the fire or reignited this desire to just tell the stories, to connect with people through the stories. And as storytellers, we have an obligation to do that. But it's so hard sometimes when like, you've been holed up in your little apartment for the last year and a half. Right. Your little heart is closed to everybody Mm -hmm. except for your Zoom screen. It's hard. You've said, I mean, you said it. It's like you have, if, if it matters to you, then it's worth doing. And then, like going back to the leadership thing, like it's the why behind it. That's like the driving force that keeps you motivated and going. Like, no, there's a purpose and a reason why I'm doing this. It's not for the number of likes I might get or the turnout of the event. Like I'm passionate about this thing that I want to tell. And so I'm going to tell it. And that's that. I mean, that's just, that's enough. So with that said, you and your famous career, do you have anything coming up that we can keep our eyeballs out for that you can talk about? Well, I mean, I'm supposed to be uh, doing Fire Shove My Bones at the Met, supposed to open the season. I'm really looking forward to to being back in New York to do that. I kind of have another album in the works that won't be out for a while, but it's just like very beginning stages. All I'll say is that it's featuring female American artists poets and singers and you know it's uh so that's sort of like i think that's just starting to take form and the factotum my opera the barbershop opera loosely based off barbara of seville keep your eyes peeled for that um there's actually a documentary it's called creating the factotum and it's on lyric opera's website and it gives you a little insight about the story and the piece we're premiering that in a future season so stay tuned because where, you know, it's been honestly the biggest joy during this pandemic is creating that and just watching it evolve. And the workshop was a lot of fun. And it's something I realized, like, I really have a passion for is creating. And yeah, excellent. that'll be fun. We generally like to close the podcast with a piece of advice from our guests. So if you were to leave us with a piece of wisdom, what would it be? Be your best authentic self and don't apologize for that. I think that's great. And especially in a time where we really have to own who we are in order to even be seen, let alone heard, not apologizing for you who you are is huge. Thank you so much for listening. If Will's work isn't a testament to the connective power of story, I don't know what is. There's an enormous level of motivation, drive, trust, and love that goes into this kind of storytelling. But everyone can, and should, be able to express their own stories. I'll be here with Sam Martin next Monday for the season one finale of Song Cycle. Until then, be sure to check us out online at cincinnatisonginitiative.org and on all the usual socials. Until next time, just keep singing, y'all.